Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. I'm Ryan Honeyman, a partner at Lyft Economy. My guest today is Dr. Michael Newton. Dr. Newton earned a PhD in Celtic Studies from the University of Edinburgh and was an assistant professor in the Celtic Studies Department of St. Francis Xavier University in Nova Scotia. He has written a multitude of books and articles about Gallic culture and history. His scholarship has been used for the Outlander TV series, and he is a leading authority on Scottish Gallic heritage in North America. He established the Hidden Glen Folk School in 2019 to give people more meaningful contact with Scottish Highland tradition, history, and culture. And one of the reasons I'm excited to have Michael on the show is that he's one of the leading scholars in the application of issues of coloniality, race, and ethnic identity to Scottish Gaelic studies. In particular, I'm excited to talk about how the history and legacy of empire and coloniality in a Scottish Highland context apply to contemporary issues of social justice. So, Michael, welcome to the show. I'm Avion. Hello, and thank you for inviting me to be on. Thank you. It's probably one of the first times I've actually heard my own native <laughs> ancestral language, so yeah, appreciating that. Can we start with a bit about your background and how you first got interested in the work you're doing today? Oh, sure. So I actually grew up in the desert in the southeast of California, and it always seemed like a very alienated place, like a place that really shouldn't have been there because this is, of course, an artificial oasis hacked out of the desert that relies upon diverting massive amounts of water, which, of course, are increasingly less available to people. My own grandparents themselves had been, two or three of them had been orphaned when they were young. So I had a great sense of discontinuity, although I knew that there were some of the other lineages there that connected to Scotland and Ireland. I didn't really know anything in particular of any substance or anything tangible. But when I was a teenager, I was in a special literature program and I was very into literature and also I've always loved music and dance. And so as a late teen, I discovered what is popularly called, you know, Celtic music and Celtic dance. So this is going back to the 80s. Somebody said, oh, you probably like this music. And this was a a Breton harp player named Alan Stavell who was kind of a pan-Celticist. So I started listening to the music and hearing the songs and reading the literature and also just kind of accidentally coming across Irish people who did step dancing and things like that. And at the same time, I was already very strongly aware of issues of human ecology and the environmental crisis. For whatever reason, it seemed to be a rather obvious concern in the 80s when I guess a lot of people just weren't thinking much about it. So all of these things were lenses or were kind of anchors or magnets that were pulling me toward this area in which I found ways to engage with all of those things. And those have been kind of lasting interests or concerns in my research. My PhD, when I did my PhD in Edinburgh, it was about trees in Gallic tradition. So initially I was interested in general, you know, human ecology, 
sense of place and belonging and so on, but there was no obvious model that I could use for that topic. And I had written this article about trees in Gallic tradition, and my supervisor said, why don't you just do trees? So I ended up choosing that. I have covered a lot of issues of human ecology, but I've also done research about music and dance tradition, song tradition. And also after I came back from Scotland to the States in whatever that was, 1999, I found myself having to explain to people why Gaelic? Why was Gaelic an interest and what relevance could it possibly have on this continent? And so I spent a lot of time researching and delving in through obscure sources and came out with a huge amount of material, including from California itself, which I didn't expect to find, demonstrating that this is indeed a very important strand of the history and the heritage in a broad sense of people on this continent, but it's been very subsumed for a number of reasons. So I've continued to kind of pursue those various lines of scholarship and research and advocacy, I guess you could say, because as I see it, these things are very relevant, whether we're talking about the past or the present, but not necessarily in ways that people find obvious or have preconceived notion of why, because the common assumption is, well, this group or that group invented this thing or made this thing that's supposed to be important in modern America. Well, that may be true, but there's a lot of other subcurrents that are kind of invisible or kind of subsumed within other masks that lead, I think, to questions that have to do with this history and what you could call psychodynamics, the psychodynamics of coloniality. So that's kind of a roundabout answer, but hopefully that's useful. That's great. I think the ideas of like social justice and race, they seem to be more prevalent and people are more talking about it now. When did you first really connect? Like, So what I'm seeing in how Scotland was colonized from Imperial Britain and like how those undercurrents affect us now, when did you start to make those connections? Well, it's a question that you have to almost immediately confront. Although, you know, when I first had these interests in the late 80s and 90s, the term social justice, I don't think I was aware of it until fairly recently, but that was the mentality or that was the lens which I had. So I guess to back up a little bit, because I grew up in a, in a multilingual, multi-ethnic community and members of my own family were not homogeneously white and Anglo. So it was kind of, you know, again, obvious to me, it wasn't because anybody was indoctrinating me to look at the world in a certain way and think about social justice. It was just kind of like in the air. And maybe that's because I kind of grew up with some consciousness of that in my background. I was born in 1965. And of course, I can, my earliest memories are kind of of the mid seventies when you have all the Vietnam and social well, a civil rights era movement kind of culmination coming to fruition and so on. So part of that was, I think, just kind of in the in the larger background. And, you know, again, for whatever reason, I'm not exactly sure why, but I really glommed on to the importance of the environmental crisis in the 80s. And, you know, maybe part of it is because having grown up in California in a desert, being aware that water was a really important issue, seeing the kind of environmental degradation that was happening across California with overbuilding and 
the effects of agribusiness and all these sorts of things. It, you know, again, it was kind of in the background. Nobody explicitly said, this is important. You should look into this. So I had kind of, again, kind of that in my consciousness and, and my background and as well as, I guess, sort of as an offshoots of civil rights, a consciousness about the colonization of North America and the impacts on Native peoples. There was a, a woman in my family, we called her aunt, but she was actually like a first cousin once removed or something like that, who was very involved with the Native group in her area. She did anthropology. And so I think maybe that was an influence on me as well. So I already kind of had those sorts of lenses in mind, although I didn't have formal training as such. And when you go to Scotland or Ireland or one of these places and you start to live in the community, you realize that this is not a sovereign, self-reliant, fully functioning society, that this is a society under duress. It's under occupation. And there's a long, long history of colonialism in these countries and these communities because you know how else do you explain why is the language endangered why were the so many people forced to emigrate why do so few people have have access to their own land so you have to immediately ask what happened here and when you start digging and you start probing objectively you can see that the same kinds of issues that i was aware of in North America also apply there. But of course, the history is longer, it's more entangled, and it's very intersectional. Right? You have to think about a different set of intersections than you necessarily would in North America. But it's part of the larger story of empire. And there is a continuity from the original Celtic areas into North America, because part of the, I don't mean to kind of get ahead here, but I think that we have to be more nuanced than the very common leftist approach of, well, things are bad in North America because these European white people encountered these people that look different than they were. And so they decided we must subjugate them and conquer them. I mean, it's way more complex than that because the models, where do they get the idea about otherness? How did they come up with the institutions and practices and ideologies of othering, of domination, of colonialism. Well, they had already been doing it. And they simply transferred and expanded and adapted those things when they came here. So that's maybe a longer answer than you wanted, but you can see how it is part of the same history. And far too often, the ocean becomes a barrier to people's intellectual understanding or their historical consciousness. And people say in Scotland, for example, because I know Scotland the best, I, I have some experience in Ireland and Wales, but primarily Scotland is, is where I lived for seven years. People there primarily think in terms of people leaving and becoming materially successful elsewhere. And they might think about kind of their own inferiority in relation to the Anglophone status quo. And they may be aware of things like civil rights or of racial you know, hierarchies and so on, racism in North America, but they often don't see how they connect. Whereas people in North America generally kind of frame it as though this is something unique and inevitable and organic because people look different and therefore they're going to have conflict, which is not historically accurate. Yeah, you said something in one of your talks that I wanted to quote. You talked about 
since the 12th century, English propagandists claimed that the barbaric Celts, and maybe just quickly, what are the Celts, just so we, and Celts versus Gallic, just so we can get that for folks some terms. So Celtic is a term we use as a kind of abstraction for a family of languages and the communities that speak them. It's like the term, say, Germanic or Romance or Slavic or Greek. These are language families and associated cultures and societies. So when the Romans came to Britain, it was both Britain and Ireland were places that were occupied by communities that spoke Celtic languages. And, of course, the Roman Empire occupied the southern part of Britain for several centuries. And then toward the latter end of that, you have Germanic peoples coming in as mercenaries and then kind of filling the vacuum when the Romans left. And so over time, over the centuries, there's been an increasing hegemony of Anglophone Germanic power. And that has caused the fragmentation of those previous Celtic-speaking communities And of course, they've kind of reassembled themselves in various ways in different times. There's kind of been some back and forth. But on the whole, the story is one of expansionism of Anglophones and the marginalization and disenfranchisement of the Celtic communities. Now, Gallic is a a branch off of that Celtic family. So you can have two major branches in the British Isles. You have the branch, which is sometimes called the Pre-Celtic or Brythonic branch that includes Welsh and Cornish and Breton. And then you have the Q-Celtic or Goidelic branch, which includes Irish, Scottish Gaelic, and Manx. So going back to this quote that you said in one of your talks, English propagandists have claimed for centuries that the barbaric Celts in Ireland, Scotland, and Wales needed to be civilized. They called them lazy, bestial, thievish, incapable of exploiting their material resources around them. And it was the Englishman's burden to civilize those around them, which required invasion and colonization. And the last thing you mentioned is debates continued into the mid-19th century about whether it was better to try to reform the Celtic people or simply kill them all off. And so can you talk about that? It sounds very familiar, right, to the U.S.? Right. Those people on the other side of the wall there, you know, they're just, they're lazy. They're going to come and take our jobs and marry our women and invert or threaten our civilization, our way of life. You know, these are all very familiar phrases and ideas and motifs. And yeah, they have a very long history in the Anglophone world, which again, that ought to alert us that there is a continuity of colonialism and that so many of the expressions or manifestations of empire in North America have much earlier precedence in these Celtic contexts. Yeah, and it's hard to point our finger and say it was the English or it was X, because like you were like the Romans, right, came and conquered the tribes and you know established occupation. Are you able to point to a colonizing force or moment or person, or is it just more of like it's just a, a process that's been passed for many generations? Well, I mean, what you can say, I think, pretty clearly is that there are certain structural features of empire that reoccur, that replay themselves. So the earliest ideologies about othering that frame it in terms of, well, we are the civilized people 
who love order and rationality. And those people over there, we have to conquer them because they can't rule themselves. They're irrational. They're chaotic. They don't know how to be disciplined and orderly. The, the first kind of manifestation of that occurs in the classical writings of the Greeks and the Romans. And they were largely about the Celts. Now, they weren't exclusively. They had the same kind of ideology about the people in the Persian Empire as well. But in terms of that was kind of toward the east, when they're looking to the west and the north, the people they see immediately on the other side of the wall, as it were, other side of the border are the Celts. And so those are the ones that they are concerned about. And in fact, the Celts, some Celtic groups came and, and ransacked Rome several centuries before Caesar took power and and created his own little empire, a well, big empire. So those ideas were embodied in the literature of the classical world. And that kind of idea of a struggle of self-righteous superior people who had justification for applying their so-called superior technology and civilization on other people who were a threat to that. So what happens in the 11th and 12th century is you have the mini-Renaissance when people are going back to those sources. And so when you have this kind of new emergent power of the Anglo-Normans in the 12th century, they're looking back at that literature and they're seeing themselves in the guise of this powerful, superior civilization. And when they want to expand, who's right next to them that's in their way of expansion? Well, these people, they happen to be Celts. It's just a coincidence that they're of the same family, the same language and cultural family, they would have applied that rhetoric to anybody that was there. But it is a very interesting coincidence. And it was a very convenient way for them to express and justify their expansion into those places. So you have the Normans, the Anglo-Normans going into Ireland in the 12th century. And at the same time, the person who became the King of Scotland had been raised in the Anglo-Norman court as a hostage, which was the common practice at the time that in order to ensure that, you know, another ruler is going to act according to your wishes, you take one of their sons as a hostage. So this was not unusual. There's not any sign of something exceptional between the Scots and the English. But the result was that this son, who kind of unexpectedly became king of Scotland, had been conditioned by this way of looking at the world, this way of thinking about government and power. And so when he became king of Scotland, he said, well, I've got to bring this way of government, this way of ruling, this way of power with me. And so he created plantations, settlements in the lowlands, what's now the Scottish lowlands, of people who had grown up in this uh, and who were familiar with this form of power that, you know, we can loosely call feudalism. You know, you have a hierarchy where the king is the absolute complete ruler and owner of all land, and he can grant land to people below him if they give them their absolute loyalty. And so you have kind of the insertion into Scotland of this new form of power. And it can't be immediately applied to the Highlands very well. That stays resistant. So in the Lowlands, that area that had been Gaelic-speaking becomes anglicized to a large degree. Whereas in the Highlands, even those Anglo-Norman lords who go to conquer and hold land for the king become assimilated to Gallic society. 
So you, over time, over two or three centuries, you see a big divide or split emerging between the highlands, which remain Gaelic-speaking, and the Western Isles, and the lowlands, which become, which become Anglicized and pulled into that central government. And this is helpful because I think it's putting us on a little bit of more of a timeline towards how we sort of relate this back to America, because you have the English wanted to then take over Northern Ireland, or at least disconnect the Celtic chiefs, right, between Scotland and, and Northern Ireland. And so you have the colonized part of Southern Scotland, the lowlands, is that where they sort of raise up the forces to go say, yeah, now you can go have land and power and go, but you're basically sent to colonize Northern Ireland? Well, partially. Some of the settlers were drawn from there. So yeah, you have an increasing centralization and a monopolization of power in the Scottish lowlands. And the kings of Scotland are trying to increasingly do this to monopolize the power. And Scotland was a difficult place to centralize power in because, for example, especially the highlands, there were no roads. It was hard to navigate. It was hard to get around. And again, like linguistically and culturally, they saw themselves as being separate from the lowlands, as being different from them. And people in the lowlands were projecting the same stereotypes on the highlanders that they're lazy and they don't know how to work and they're like animals and they're barbaric and so on. While at the same time, as you've just said, the Gallic chieftains in the west of Scotland and the Western Isles, they were providing most of the warrior power that was being sent to the north of Ireland for the Gallic chiefs in Ireland to withstand English attempts to colonize them. So the north of Ireland was seen as being particularly resistant and an important kind of centerpiece or focal point for resistance, and therefore the place you're going to have to conquer in order to conquer Ireland. So what happens is James VI of Scotland, who was very ambitious in terms of creating an empire for himself, he set himself to create colonies in the highlands to break the power of the highland chiefs, the Gaelic chieftains, to try to conquer and anglicize the highlands. That was his ambition. And then he became not only the king of Scotland, but he also became king of England. So now he suddenly has access to power of two kingdoms. And he declares that the, well, it actually started before him with Elizabeth, but they focus on the north of Ireland so that Ireland can be conquered. And by using religion as well as a means of a political loyalty and litmus test, both language, culture, and religion were seen as things to focus on when colonizing Ireland and ways in which you can change people's identity and culture so that they're focused on you and not other people like the Pope or their chieftains or their own traditions. So you have emerging in the 16th century not only efforts to colonize parts of the highlands that are resistant, but also Ireland. You have legislation being passed by the parliament, well, by the Privy Council, which is sort of like President's Cabinet in Scotland, to set up schools in the highlands and to force the chieftain's sons to go to the lowlands to learn English and to also set up Protestantism as the official religion and means of kind of civilizing the people who are said to be barbaric because their language is barbaric because they don't have the right political and religious loyalties. And many of the people who were involved in that colonization of the north of Ireland, who were exposed to and involved with these ideologies and institutions, end up 
going where? They end up going to North America. So they directly take with them these very same mentalities and practices. There's this mythology about the Scotch-Irish, you know, Andrew Jackson and, you know, all these presidents like Bill Clinton, I think, is probably like claiming Scots. What do you wish more people knew about Scotch-Irish and this whole like American ideal of like what it means to be Scotch-Irish? One important thing to realize is that all identity labels can be misleading because they're invented at a certain time for a certain reason. And over time, the labels and the people it's supposed to label change. So that's one really important thing. And I'll explain how it fits into this history in a second. It's not DNA. Like there's no label written on your DNA, right? DNA and ethnicity are totally different. They're not related because both of them exist independently. And ethnicity exists because of human communities and human perceptions and human agendas. So that's one part of this. Another one is the simplistic equation that people have that, well, one country is one ethnic group. Well, that's just not true. It's usually the case that a single country has many ethnic groups inside of it. And some of those ethnic groups span multiple countries. So, for example, if you're in the U.S., well, there are many ethnic groups in the U.S. that have been here for a long time. And some of them just don't conform to racial boundaries or racial blocks. You know, the Apache are not the same people as the Navajo. They're different ethnicities. Even though they may be subsumed within the creation of a racial label, they're different people. Just as the Cajuns are not the same people as people of New York or people in Los Angeles. They're different ethnic groups. And people in North America in particular carry such strong impressions about race that they don't see these other forms of identity very easily. The the preconceptions about race have been so ingrained in people that it really obscures their understanding of how people live and how people see the world. And another one is this equation between Celticness and rural communities. The assumption, oh, that's rural, that's old time stuff, it must be Celtic. Well, that's just irrelevant. That's an irrelevant categorization. So to go back to this actual history, what happened was that of those people who settled in the north of Ireland because of colonization, the king wanted a way to find people who could settle and hold the land in the north of Ireland as loyal settlers, to be loyal to the crown. And at that time, the main litmus test for loyalty was religious affiliation. So let's open the land for Protestants. Now, there were Protestants in many places, in England, uh, in the south of Scotland, in France. You had the French Huguenots. And you had people in Ireland that were willing to change religious affiliation. So those people in the north who became Protestants or nominally Protestants say, oh yeah, okay, I'm a, I'm a Protestant, whatever that means, because I, I, I need land, I want land, and I don't want to be on the receiving side of oppression, so I'm now a Protestant, right? So these are the various groups that are in the north of Ireland, and over several generations, you have communities shifting and forming different allegiances and religious affiliations, and one of the Protestant groups there well, some of them, I should say, multiple ones, became attached to the Presbyterian Church rather than the desired Anglican Church. So the head of the Anglican Church is the king. 
And that's how he uses religion to ensure that people see him as the ultimate authority of secular and religious life. But the Presbyterian Church, which was imported from the lowlands in Scotland, said every congregation gets to have its own say in its running of affairs, and we don't recognize the power of the king over the church. And the king didn't really like that, because that meant that he could not influence them and control them to the degree that he wanted. So those people who, even though they were not Catholic, they did not recognize the ultimate authority, religious authority of the king, felt that they were being unfairly treated in relation to the Anglicans. And so they decided that the best option for them in the early 1700s was to leave to the British colonies in North America. But by that time, they were already, you know, they'd been in Ireland for several generations, two, three, four generations, and they saw themselves as Irish. And when they wrote about themselves in North America, they described themselves as Irish. They spoke English. English was their primary language. There were some that were Gaelic speakers, but a very small number at that point. An Anglophone Protestant identity was the core of who they were. So they come to the colonies, and for the most part, they have to go to the frontiers. And they go to places in the west of those frontiers as they existed at that time, and a very good number of them. So they're in the U.S. for over a century and see themselves as Irish Presbyterians. And then what happens? Then you have the famine happening in Ireland. In the 1840s, you have a massive disease of the crops, of the potato crops, because the Irish gales have been disenfranchised. They had no access to land. They were just poor landless paupers and were very dependent upon the potato for existence, for their existence. And once the potato crop got wiped out, they were starving. And you have over a million people in Ireland that died from either starvation directly or more often from diseases that came from weakness, from not having food. Ireland, of course, was growing plenty of crops, but they were shipped over to Britain. So it was not that Ireland was not capable of sustaining its own population. It's just that the people, the native Gales themselves did not have their own land. It had been taken away from them because Ireland was a colony, which a lot of people don't, I think, fully appreciate. So you have over a million poor Catholic Gales leaving Ireland and coming to North America at that time. And remember that this was a highly anti-Catholic country that had privileged Protestant religion and identity. And these poor Irish people were seen as being less than fully human, as being kind of a danger to the Anglo-Protestant ascendancy in the U.S., so you have a backlash against against all of this immigration. And the people who had been in North America, in the U.S. at that point, for over 100 years, they say, well, we're not that kind of Irish. We're a different kind of Irish. Okay, we're Irish Presbyterians. Where did the Presbyterian Church come? I came from Scotland. Okay, we're Scotch-Irish. That's what we are. So the label was invented at that time. It was not a pre-existing label that was used widely of who they were. And so you have, at the same time, you have the racialization of Gaelic peoples of Ireland and Scotland as being, you know, inferior to Anglo-Saxons. Because remember, this is kind of the height of manifest destiny of Anglo-Saxon triumphalism in North America and the world, because that British Empire was everywhere. And so people who want power need to assimilate to that kind of identity label. And so Scotch-Irish 
is a very anti-Celtic, anti-Gallic, anti-Catholic way of constructing an identity that would suit the needs of the moment to identify with the, the status quo, with the dominant group, and to distance themselves from the native Irish Gaels who were coming impoverished and desperate refugees. Wow, that is incredible. Thank you for that story. What it brings up for me, and it's it's something that you you talk about in one of your courses, is how does this experience of dispossession and disenfranchisement leave this multi-generational legacy of trauma of many families of, is it Gaelic or Gaelic? Well, in North America, and even in Nova Scotia, where the language still exists, people tend to say Gaelic. In Scotland, people say Gaelic, because that's the name that the language has for itself. So I tend to sort of use both sometimes, but depending on who I'm talking to and what the context is, yeah, they're both correct. So yeah, it seems like this multi-generational legacy of trauma and how it impacts us. Like I have some very conservative members of my family who were, you know, very fiercely like Scotch Irish and, and, you know, have a lot of guns and are like, we have to have guns because the people are coming for us. And they have to protect us. I'm like, who is coming for you? You're like, you're a well-to-do white person, you know, but it feels like there's some layer of trauma that's like, we've actually been uprooted from our homes and that's still with us and still plays out here in America. Could you speak at all to that and how it might play into some of the politics and polarization? Yeah, I, I do think that that is a common problem that is hidden by whiteness, because what people see in whiteness is power and a holding on to power and a kind of roughness and toughness and lack of compassion, a desire to maintain control, you know, all these kinds of issues. So where does that come from, right? And a very common, I think, assumption is, you know, because whiteness is bad and white people are evil and oppressive by nature, and there's something about white people or something that causes these conflicts to happen, you know, almost like making it number one, like for some reason it's organic to coming from Europe and it's inevitable because we look different from other people. And number two, making it a kind of original sin that you then get trapped in because of your physical appearance or because your ancestry or whatever. And I think that those are, are not terribly useful ways of either looking at it historically or in terms of, you know, how do we undo this or how do we unravel this entangled history and legacy of what is oppression, right? And so what was happening, you know, why did immigrants come to North America? Not just these people from the North of Ireland, not even just people from the British Isles, but everywhere. And very often it is because they were suffering some kind of oppression, some sort of trauma, some sort of internal struggle in their society, and they had to flee. And when that happens and you don't have any way of processing what happened and why it happened, and when you have to immediately go into survival mode and accept the conditions that are laid out to you, that very often results in this kind of cauterization of the soul. It's kill or be killed. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, and you just better start get ready to eat some dogs. So what happens when... Again, you have to assimilate, and there is a path of assimilation. There's a precedent for that, is you have these people who have been thrown off their land, for example. So to go into the specific case of Scottish Gales, who started coming 
to North America, settling as immigrants in the 1730s in small numbers, and then kind of increasingly from the 1760s onwards, is that very often either they were directly thrown off of their land and forced to immigrate, or else their means of existence were so marginal that they saw no good option because the elite in the country had absolute power. And people, I think, are not generally aware of the fact that Scottish Highlanders could not vote. It was not a universal um, franchise to vote until the 1880s, by which time most of them had been taken off their land anyway. And the pattern of land holding in, in Scotland, even to the present, is the worst in the developed world. So people don't have the ability to be secure on their own land. So what happens when you have people who have been forcibly taken from their land, who are told from generations that their language is inferior, that their culture is a sign of barbarism and savagery, that the only way forward is to assimilate and accommodate the Anglophone imposition of these are what the standards are. This is what progress looks like. This is what the modern world has to look like. If you internalize that and you say, well, okay, that's what I have to do, then it's very easy for you to say, well, this is the way the world is. This is what everybody has to do. And so you start creating the means of co-opting social capital of human power into what I call a chain of coloniality. Right, You undo the indigeneity of a group, you take them off their land, you say, you can succeed by doing this, by providing these services for empire, you will be rewarded. And then, of course, that has to be enacted out somewhere on some group, and you do it to the next group. So one aspect of, the, of this which is interesting is that the last stance of the Gales against the British Empire, essentially, you know, it's, it's complicated, but... One way in which Gale saw this was that the Jacobite Rising of 1745 was their last hope to throw off this Anglo-centric power structure and get their independence back. And that failed. So what are they going to do? What do, what do the conquered, what do the vanquished do? What, what are their options? Right, They're very limited. And so when you have what's called in American historiography, the French and Indian War, in British historiography, it's called the Seven Years' War. When that happens, the British Empire is growing and it's spending at least 75% of its budget on the military. Does that sound familiar? So there's lots to be gained by going to the military. And these landholders in the highlands have all these people that they don't want anymore because they just cost them money. They want to bring in sheep. They want to find other uses for the land other than having the resident population consume them. Well, what's what can you do? Now they're worth a lot of money because they can become cannon fodder. So they start recruiting large numbers of the Highlanders into the military. They have to make the case that, okay, these people are not going to rebel anymore. They can be loyal to you. And so the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, becomes a very pivotal turning point in the story because the Highlanders and some 12,000 Highlanders, which is a lot of people for those times, are recruited into the military, into the British regiments, and they come to North America and they fight against the French Empire in the north. And they're very prominent in these battles. And of course, the, the landlords who are themselves or have their sons in the military want to make a big show of this because this is their new income source. What happens is you have the creation of a military route for reward, financial material reward, through 
military service. And not only that, but at the conclusion of the French and Indian War, a great many of the veterans are rewarded with land. But there's no land in the Highlands anymore. Where do you give them land? Well, we've just conquered all this territory away from the French and the natives. So we're going to give them land in what's then Upper New York Province, in Quebec, in Ontario. So that creates anchor points. And these veterans start bringing their families over. So the story kind of goes from there, but that is why you have this very strong mythology and iconography around the British regiments and Highland identity. It becomes kind of wrapped up in this imperial project because there is no independent Highland anymore. There is no independent Scottish society. It's all subsumed within an imperial machine. That's fascinating. And it feels like there's some work for those of us from this region, you know, the Celtic world who are now in the US to like process some of that trauma and grief? Are there groups that are like, you know, not just sort of intellectually talking about like, that oh, wasn't it interesting that we did this, but like sort of somatically like feeling that trauma and like sort of moving through that? Do you know of any, anything like that? Well, I don't know of any groups. Now, I don't mean for this to be an advert, but I do teach the, this class of radicalizing the roots. And a great many people come to the course because they're processing those things themselves. And very often they're also involved with other communities in social justice efforts and they need a grounding. They need to understand, well, how did my family, how did my ancestry get tied up in all of this? How does the story of whiteness occlude and silence the trauma through which my own family went. And that's kind of a, I think, a very, you know, can be a painful, but it's also an empowering way of looking behind that mask of whiteness and say, what was lost? You know, what happened? What what were the actual dislocations and disempowerments and traumas that happened in that process of becoming white? Another aspect of this, I mean, maybe you're going to get to this Anyway, but just to say, I also say and look at and explore with people, what does Gallic indigeneity look like? And it's, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's very rooted. It's has these great expressions through song and poetry and folktale and mythology. So if you understand how healthy and whole and functional it was, and then you see what happens during the process of colonization, that not only helps you, I think, understand and empathize with people that are going through that now, but it also helps you understand what is the cost of all this so-called success, all of this material reward by assimilating into an Anglo-Saxon template of whiteness. One thing this brings up for me is, do the Scottish Highlands have a tradition of ancestral connection or ancestral healing or ancestral recovery? You know, I've been more in sort of looking into you know, there's like West African traditions and Native American traditions of sort of like connection with the ancestors. And I'm curious if Scottish Gaelic or Celtic or you're familiar with any sort of like ancestral connection practices within those communities. Well, certainly ancestry is really important in Scottish Gaelic tradition. And everybody is expected to know what's called your slonyak. So everybody has a line, a name sequence that goes at least seven generations back. Like that is people normally identify with those seven generations. So within a particular community, you actually have kind of three different naming conventions. So on the one hand, you have like your Slonyuk, like 
I am Michael, son of James, son, son of Edgar, son of so on, seven generations. And within your community, that's how people can very precisely put you within an ancestral matrix. This is kind of, again, rooting yourself within an ancestral community understanding matrix. Then you have also nicknames. So let's say that you pretended to be a DJ or a podcast host when you were a kid. And so people start calling you Ryan DJ or maybe just DJ. And over time, people don't actually know what your first and last name are. They just know you as DJ. So there's that. And then when bureaucracy came from the centralized government, Anglophone in the 17th century, then the people who are literate in communities started just assigning people's names, depending on whatever the surname was of the landholder. But surnames were not really a practice for the commonality, just for like the chieftains. So then you start the 17th century onwards, start getting kind of the imposition of surnames coming into Gallic society. But it was kind of not a pre-existing practice at all. So that's just partially to say just people's names and very strong knowledge of their ancestral lineages are just an expected part of Gallic society. And then there is the oral tradition in general, where in a community, especially in the dark half of the year, between roughly Halloween and Beltane, people would come together in a community and they would share songs and stories. And inevitably, many of those songs and stories would be about their local community. And everybody would know scores of songs and stories to share, which means that you are deeply, thickly embedded in the ancestral lore of your community. So that's the tradition. Even though I've talked about these various aspects of coloniality through military, through dispossession, through you know religious indoctrination, these traditions have survived to some extent in many places in Gallic-speaking communities. So Gallic is not dead. <laughs> Even though there have been centuries of trying to kill it off, it does survive marginally, but it still exists, both in Nova Scotia and in Scotland. And people who are engaged in Gallic tradition almost inevitably become engaged in these kinds of materials, which, which are all about commenting about and remembering ancestral people and events and values and so on. I don't think that there are specific traditions that are about healing that connection because it's just expected to exist. So if Gallic society was still as fully functional as it was 300 years ago, then there might be new traditions to try to break these continuities. And these things are probably emerging now. But there is not a pre-existing way of saying we need to heal the trauma between generations just because when people get lost, they tend to just get out of the loop, as it were. Well, Michael, could you give folks a little bit about Hidden Glen Folk School and some of the other places where folks can find your work and follow you and join what you're up to? So, I, yeah, I am offering courses on Hidden Glen. I'm currently doing like weekly, what I call Kaylee's, which are basically, uh, they're essentially seminars where I have four different themes. And every week, the first four weeks of the month, 
I do a different seminar on that theme. So I've got themes of ancestral voices. We're looking at stories and songs. I've got a pop culture one where we look at the ways in which Anglo pop culture kind of appropriate aspects of the Gallic world. I've got another week called Engaging the Powers where we look at issues of social justice and coloniality. And then the fourth week is one called the Sacred Spring where we're looking at aspects of indigenous spirituality and cosmology. But the courses I currently have kind of like an academic year roughly of a sequence of courses from an introductory course to what I call a reclaiming the roots, looking at indigeneity, various aspects of indigeneity. I've got the reclaiming the roots course where we're looking at coloniality, empire, social justice. Then I've got a diaspora course looking at the Gallic diaspora in North America and Australia and New Zealand. And then I've got a folktale course where we're looking at Gallic folktales. And I'm hoping to develop uh, summer courses that are resident in Scotland and Nova Scotia. COVID has thrown a wrench into my plans in Scotland, so it cannot happen in Scotland in the summer. I hope it will. I'm still working on the plans for Nova Scotia because there is still a living Gallic community in Nova Scotia, and it's distinct from that in Scotland. There are some traditions that have evolved more and some that have been lost and in both places. Then on top of that, I've got quite a number of books and scholarly articles on various aspects of this history and tradition. And I do occasional podcasts and events, and I will be doing at least one just kind of open public online event through Hidden Glen. So it's free to join as, as a, get a free membership on Hidden Glen, and then you can read the public blogs and see the events that are forthcoming. Great. And what's the website, just so folks can know? It's hiddenglenfolk.org. Hidden Glen Folk. Well, thank you so much, Michael. This has been incredible for me as someone, you know, have always identified with these Scottish, Irish, Gaelic, Gaelic, depending on, you know, who you are. <laughs> and I really appreciate the lens you're holding around. Let's see the through line from how colonization and oppression sort of show up today. And I don't think there's many folks doing that work, at least around, particularly like the United Kingdom and like in Europe. So uh, I just really want to appreciate you for doing that. Thanks. And I want to also underline it. The story is not, oh, look, this happened to us and now we're okay. It's the opposite of this. Oppression is a very good conditioning for becoming an oppressor. That is the story. Yeah. Well, thanks again. And maybe we'll have you back on soon. I got it. There's so much more to get into. Thank you. Enjoyed being with you. Next Economy Now is a production of Lyft Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.